mentioned this is our fourth Sunday in our Lent series. That is, we are preparing ourselves for Easter morning and taking these weeks, getting our hearts ready for when we will worship the risen Jesus. In order to do that, this series is aimed to help us to remember that we need a Savior to remind us of our sin and the, the reality that Christ came for us. So if you came to church this morning in hopes of feeling bad about yourself, you've come to the right place. We're going to talk about our sin today, but I promise it will end with good news as it always does. In the 1940s, there was an influential book written entitled, Ideas Have Consequences. Ideas have consequences. This book aimed to warn people of the risk of various political and sociological ideas which arose in the early 20th century. The title of the book revealed a very obvious fact, that if an idea is implemented, there will be consequences to the idea. Again, it's just common sense. And we can look back and argue over the past century if the book was right or wrong, but for today, I just want us to think about the title of the book in relation to this passage. For us to simply recognize that there is a logical reality to consequences when ideas are implemented. If an idea is good, there's going to be good consequences. And, of course, the opposite of that is true. I once had the great idea that I would purchase a used inflatable kayak. Let those words sink in, if you will. Used inflatable kayak. And you get the idea of a bad idea that was implemented. Well, anyway, this morning in our passage, we're going to see extreme consequences to extreme ideas. And as we look at another one of these parables that Jesus gave in his final week of life, we're going to see sort of a summation of the entire story of the Bible. We're going to see the goodness of our Father, we're going to see the folly of our own sin, and then we're going to see the hope that God's mercy will yet extend beyond our sin. As Will taught us last week, and remind us all again now, Jesus' intent with these parables was to convince the religious people that they had missed it all. That's what he was doing here. For anybody who thought that in their rituals they would find the kingdom of God had missed out on his blessing. So now we get the story. Jesus tells an imaginary account about a vineyard. And inside this vineyard, we're going to see the Father's great love for us revealed. So here's my prayer for us this morning, my proposition, if you will. It's this, that God will open our eyes in such a way that we will see that the life we so desperately want is found exclusively in him who gives life. So from the parable, notice three things here. See, God's idea for us. Secondly, see our idea for God. And thirdly, see the extreme consequences of both. And I pray the Lord will open our eyes. So keep your Bibles open to Matthew 21 as I go through this parable and we'll see these ideas together. First, notice God's idea for us beginning in verse 33. Jesus paints a picture here for those religious leaders that had missed everything that were continually being persistent Uh, in their religious work, but not paying attention to his message of repentance. They persisted in work that would never bring about the life they wanted, and so doing, they continually were miserable. So Jesus' words were to cause their imagination to view life from the beginning. Notice what he did here to start this account, where he describes life as it is meant to be. As you read verse 33, and you see these people working in a vineyard, 
I hope what will come to your mind this morning is a return to the Garden of Eden and the beginning of our story at the very, very beginning of creation. Notice some of the details inside of this vineyard. Notice this land had a master. That is, there was someone who initiated it all. There was someone who owned it, someone who was responsible for it. But this land also had a purpose. It was to produce wine. It was to produce produce, if you will. It was to be fruitful. It was to be used for an intended purpose. But notice also this land had a fence around it, meaning that the master designed it in such a way that he wanted to protect the citizens who lived there to ensure their safety. Notice also this land was advanced. There's a strange thing here that that mentions there's a wine press that was dug. What that was meant to convey and the original uh, hearers would have understood is that everything that was needed to produce the wine was right there. They didn't have to take it anywhere else, but right where they lived, they had all that they needed to thrive. And then lastly, I love this picture. This land had a tower. That would be seen in the vineyard. And whenever you looked at that tower, you would know that the owner had ability to provide care and protection. That is, these workers in their field would not be forgotten. The owner was never unaware of their needs. Do you see the picture? Jesus is painting here. He's painting a picture of what scholars often refer to as human flourishing. It's a place where God's people are designed to thrive. A place where they could enjoy. A place where they could live and have success. And yes, part of that was their work. Work not exclusively in the idea of an employment, but rather work is that which humans do when they produce something, when they enjoy doing what it is that God has made them to do. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, as God instructed Adam and Eve, they were given this task. They were to multiply and have dominion. That is, they were to engage in activity that would produce something. Tim Keller says this about humans and our work. He says, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. That is to thrive, to enjoy, to have peace because we're doing what God made us to do. See this morning from the very beginning that we were created to thrive, to enjoy, to be fruitful. You and I were created to delight in all of our callings, to enjoy the life has that God has for us, and to produce beauty through him. From the very beginning in the garden, all through the promised land of ancient Israel, God's idea is that his people would dwell in a place where they could thrive. Now, Jesus sets the stage here. Because his intent was to cause their minds to those who could listen with all of their religious effort for them to see that's not what was true in their life. They were not flourishing. They were doing something else. So he reminded them of this beautiful place under his care, under his protection, and yes, under his authority, but the authority of a loving master. So before we go any further in this parable, let me just ask you this question. Is that your view of God? Is that your view of what you think your heavenly father is about? Do you think God has made you to enjoy him? To thrive? To flourish? You know, I sense that's typically not what we imagine God to be. 
we're typically prone to think of God as being completely indifferent toward us, or maybe even angry at us, or maybe even non-existent at all. Please see this morning from this text and throughout the rest of the Bible and everything that we believe that God's created order is for our good, that he is for us and for his glory. Do not miss the beautiful beginning of this story. All right, we've seen God's idea, part one. Now, look at part two, our idea for God, which is not so beautiful. Hang on. Verse 34 Let this tragedy unfold before your eyes and hearts this morning as we prepare for Easter in a few weeks. In this imaginary story, the vineyard has been created, and now, now it's time to collect the harvest. That was, after all, the point of having a vineyard. One would think how this story would go is that the workers would gladly provide the produce and everyone would enjoy the celebration of the fruit of their labor and they would have wine together. You would think that's the end of the story. Well, as we read, that's not exactly what happened. One guy after the first service said, man, a lot of killing in that passage. Yep, a lot of killing in this passage. Let's make sure we see these characters correctly this morning. Notice four different characters inside the story. First, There's the master of the house. This is clearly God the Father, the creator, the initiator of it all. Secondly, the tenants. That is representing humanity. That's us. Thirdly are the servants. And in Jesus' day, they referred to all the Old Testament prophets. So Moses, Elijah, everyone who spoke for God. And then the son who was killed, of course, represents Jesus. More about him in just a moment. Verse 35 Notice the unveiling of this tragedy. What was man's idea? What was man's good idea with all that God had done for him? Was it that they were going to give thanks for this wonderful life he had made? No. No, they had a different idea. Their brilliant idea here in verse 35 was threefold. To beat, to kill, and to stone. It's as you read that, it's like, wait a minute, what happened? Beat, kill, and stone? What, where did they get that idea? Oh, but we're not finished. There's more. Verse 36. The father surely assumed that there was a misunderstanding, so he sent more servants. He graciously provided more truth-tellers. Then they would come to their senses. That's surely what would happen. The servants' response, they were beaten, killed, and stoned all the more. And now we have to stop and ask, what's wrong with these people? Why do they hate their father so much? What has this master done that they kill everyone sent to them? What did he do that created such a response? Where did they get these crazy ideas? And just when you think it can't get worse, it does. Verse 37. Notice the master loves these people so much. His heart is so great. His commitment is so intense for them. He knows what will solve the problem. The master says, if I just send my son, my only son, that will show them. Then they'll see, then they'll wake up, then they'll understand. Then they'll recognize my great love for them. My son will explain everything in this rebellion will be over. And in verse 38, in the spirit of Lent, as we prepare our hearts To worship Jesus who came for sinners, let this tragedy affect your heart this morning. 
the people have one more bright idea left up their sleeve. And what is that? They have killed so many already. Let's kill the son too. Why? So that they can have his inheritance. Do you see what's going on here? You see, they enjoyed the place where they lived, but they did not want the master to have any authority over them at all. No more of his tower, no more of his fence, no more of his ways. We're going to live here any way we want. That's man's idea. It's that if we can figure out a way to enjoy this world apart from the creator of the world, then we'll have the life we always wanted. I told the story to the women's Bible study a few months ago, so if you already heard this, I apologize. Uh, but before Lisa and I had a grandson, we had a grand dog. And you need to know, we really, really, really love our grand dog. Macy and Andrew have a dog named Hagrid. Uh, he is named after the figure in Harry Potter because he is big, he's brown, and he's furry. Hagrid was a puppy during the days of uh, COVID lockdown, and he stayed with us. And I assure you, Lisa and I fell in love with Hagrid. He's a chow, and we think he's the greatest dog ever. He's not, but we act like he is. You need to know, we spoil Hagrid when he comes to our house. He regularly sits in my recliner as we watch television. When it's time for us to eat, I let him put his paws up on the table. Andrew is totally against that, but granddad here lets him come up. Hagrid loves coming to our house. We have treats waiting on him when he comes. When Macy and Andrew open the door, he runs straight to the door and he can't wait to come inside. It is the perfect dog home if you want to have a spoiled pet. But it dawned on me one day when it was time to take him for a walk. Counting his leash and his harness, there are five straps that we must attach to him when we take him for a walk. Why so many? Because the dog that we love, the one that we will give anything for, would trade our loving home for one opportunity to chase a squirrel that he will never catch and be lost forever. He'd be gone. He would do it. He would trade it all just for a chance to chase a squirrel. I said point number two is so ridiculous that it's hard not to laugh when you look at the logic of these people in the vineyard. But can you accept this morning, this is our story. We are naturally sinful people. This is the part of the story of the Bible that we don't want to talk about because we don't like it. But Easter will mean nothing to us unless we accept that this is true. We are willing to trade God's perfect glory to create something on our own. It seems ridiculous, but it's true. You know, the fact is, I can't make you believe this about yourself. I can't make you believe that about what we teach here at our church. But rather, only the Holy Spirit can do such a thing. But admitting that this is our reality truly is the beginning of recognizing the life you've always wanted. Because it's peace with the God who made us. Well, if you think that's the bad news, hang on. We haven't reached the climax of the parable just yet. It gets worse. Look at verse 40. 
Jesus speaking to these religious people who he described as murderers in this story. And he asked them essentially, what do these people deserve? That is, what are the justifiable logical consequences for what you've done? What's their penalty for the story? And they answered correctly in verse 40. They said, when the master returns, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let someone else have the vineyard. What had they earned by their actions? They had earned a death sentence. Why? Because they were guilty. They earned it. They had done that. So will you admit today that this, this is our story of humanity? This is our story as people. This is our story as image bearers of God. Apart from God's grace, this is who we still are. Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones, an accidental brilliant theologian, said this. He wrote the words to uh, Sympathy for the Devil in 1968. And he asked the great question, who killed the Kennedys? And if you're my age or older, you know the answer to that. After all, it was you and me. We're the guilty ones. This is who we are. If we're going to enjoy Easter, we must move our sinful condition from a philosophical discussion to a personal one and admit that it's true. We've seen God's idea. We've seen man's idea. Let's wrap up now. We've seen the extreme consequences from God and for man. Notice this, point three. Surely the conclusion to the story is not that everyone dies. Surely there's more to this than that. In church, you know that there is. In verse 41, these words open the door for something that is beyond our imagination. You see, there are new tenants coming to live inside this vineyard. And they are all coming in the same way. They are coming through this rock found in verse 42 that was rejected by the builders. What is the rock that Jesus is referring to? This rock is a person and it is Jesus himself. This rock is someone who can do what no one else can do. This rock was the son that the tenants killed. This rock was the one who was rejected by humanity. He was killed by man. He was hated by man. He was despised by man. He was ridiculed by man. Yet the one that they killed did not remain dead. Rather, he became the cornerstone of our faith. The rock is our Lord Jesus, who, quote, even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, even after all the rejection. The master's love had not yet been exhausted. Even after all that they had done and could do more, no more sin, the father's love had not been removed. The illogical sin of the people is outdone by the illogical love of the father. There's more love coming from the father. The story continues. The father let his son go to these murderers. The father let them ridicule him. The father let them mock him. The father let them beat and punish his son. And the son gladly came and entered into the vineyard. He entered into the story of world history. The son gladly took all the abuse in the vineyard. 
The son never looked back. The son never regretted. The son even asked his father to forgive them for their insane choices. All this done to satisfy the father's justice so that we receive his love. You know who the new tenants are in the vineyard? The new tenants are the same people. The ones who now look to the cornerstone for their faith are now allowed back in the vineyard and they are new people in Christ. It's all those who now look to Jesus for the work that he did for them in the vineyard. The new workers are the same people, but they are completely new. They were the murderous people, but now they are the sons and daughters of the Father. Can you now look upon Jesus as the cornerstone of the faith, even after all that has been done, even after all the corruption that we participated in, even in all that we have been exposed to, and see the work of the Son? Even after the life of filth that we have been in this world, a world which hates the Son and His Father, we can now look upon this rock and we can be the people God always intended us to be. When John the Baptist preached before Jesus' ministry became public and people believed his message, he was asked by one of the tax collectors who was nothing but a thief. And he said, but what should we do now, he asked. That is, Jesus, I'm guilty, but I'm overwhelmed by your message and your love for me. What am I supposed to do now? And here's what John the Baptist said to him. He said, don't steal money from people again. I love that picture. When you're overwhelmed with the gospel, when you're overwhelmed with all that God has done for you, when you're overwhelmed with the Father's love for you, what is our desire now? It is to repent. Church, as we are in this season of Lent, God desires for us to live lives of repentance. When the good news of Jesus and the Father's love has filled our hearts, you know what we want? We don't want to sin anymore. That's the result. That's what will happen. As we prepare now to come to his table and be reminded of his grace found in Holy Communion, let me, let me read these words from Romans chapter 2 to you. As you consider the Father's kindness this morning, hear this. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that is our story. The Father is kind. He loves us. He does not give us what he deserves. So may our hearts this morning turn afresh to him in celebration of his love for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we will transition to the Lord's Prayer. Father, as we think about this parable and what seems to be the craziness that it is, Lord, we recognize this morning that we would never logically choose what we have done. We would never logically choose a life that's opposed to goodness and glory. But yet when we think about the depth of sin and the fallenness of the world, we know that it's real and that it's true. 
Father, this morning we exist as a church because we believe your love for us is greater than our sin. So, oh God, we pray now as your son Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.